Welcome to the SCORE Innovation Podcast. As one of the world's largest reinsurers, SCORE provides insurance companies with diverse and innovative solutions focused on the art and science of risk. The SCORE Innovation Podcast channel sheds light on evolving consumer needs in life and health and property and casualty reinsurance and connects them to global ecosystems. You can subscribe to the channel on your favorite podcast platform to get notified of all our new exciting content. Welcome back to the SCORE Innovation Podcast. I am Zveva Collison, Head of Marketing for the Americas, and it's a pleasure to have you again on the channel for the last episode of the Offshore Wind Farm series. The first two parts of this series, entitled Towards Carbon Neutrality, Offshore Wind, the Basics for the Next Generation, and Market Conditions and Risk Exposure, are available on the channel, and we encourage everyone to listen to them before this last part. It goes over the fundamentals and understanding of offshore wind and how it works, and the key progress and development in this area in Europe, the US, and Asia. Lionel, JQ, and Xinyang, welcome back to the podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you three again on the channel. Can you please all introduce yourselves once again? Hello, Zeva. It's also a pleasure for us to uh, to have you today. Uh, I'm Lionel Posey. I'm a senior uh, construction writer based in um, Houston, and uh, I have 10 years' experience in the uh, offshore industry. Hello. Hi. Thank you. Thank you, Leonard. Yeah, my name is GQ. I'm based in SCORE's uh, London office as an offshore wing underwriter. So my background is uh, offshore foundation engineering. Thank you, GQ. So this is Singang. Hello, everyone. I'm now sitting in SCORE's Singapore office, being an offshore renewable underwriter. Before SCORE, I worked in a turbine OEM for offshore turbine R&D and project management for more than 10 years. Great. So today's discussion will be a roundtable discussion around the role of insurance in offshore wind and your different perspectives on the topic. So let's jump right in and start the discussion. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I think the first uh, we we'd like to 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 discuss is uh, what's the uh, what's the role of the insurance for offshore industry. As insurance, we are provide the safeguard against the financial losses. So, is insurance policies plays a key role in the offshore wind development. We provide a safety and a security to the project owners and developers for this uncertainty from the project development. Insurance actually provide safety and security to the project owners and developers from the, uh, from these uh, uncertainties. So being as a bottom line, I believe insurance is quite crucial to those offshore wind risks in all regions. I think uh, if you, if you look at the offshore wind farm, obviously the project are going to much deeper water and the size of the project is increased significantly from the, you know, five megawatts to now Often we see any project will close to the one gigawatt. And if you look at the turbine sizes increase, the foundation increase, as I mentioned in our last episode. So the risk even much higher. And uh, when the project going big, which means much larger upfront capex need to be invested. So for the developers and the investors, that's a huge risk. 
for the prudent investors are looking usually looking for a very steady returns from their investment with very very low appetite for take any project risk it is really the trade off between the push for the innovation get the project bigger to the lower down the cost and also satisfy risk averse investors yeah, that's clear because insurance cover will decrease uh, the, the project's exposure, exposure to the risk. And so clearly, it's, that's the reason why they buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I think all in all insurance is really provide the, the foundations for the, for the offshore wind industry to moving forward. And, and the Shinkan, since you are city in the, in the Singapore region, I understand that you, you see the both sides. You, you do have some risks with the different policies. Do you want to give us some highlights of what typical policies you are seeing and what's the different policies you are experiencing? Sure. So for the major form of policies, what we are using globally, as we see, is actually the so-called wind car and wind op for offshore wind projects, construction and operation. They are developed to feed offshore wind risks pretty well with dedicated terms. Well, as we know, for some other markets, especially in APEC like China or Vietnam or maybe others, where markets are more welcoming traditional policies, such as uh, traditional onshore construction and property policies. Of course, complemented with dedicated offshore wind clauses, which provides actually similar cover as wind car and wing up. And GQ, uh, how about the uh, the claims trend? Well, well, what do you see um, uh, in Europe, for example? Yeah, I, I think uh, from the claim, obviously the cable is still a big issue. I say if you listen to the presentations and talks on the offshore wind claim, cable is always being an issue and still is the issue. It's more than 80% insurance claims are cable related, including the cable terminations and the cable protection system losses, I mean CPS, in which the root cause is interesting. It's not uh, external, always people think it should be external. It's, it isn't like a anchor strike. It's, it's not really the external, it's more internal related, like manufacturing defect or installation defect. I think more recently we are seeing it's not even the Europe, it's included APEC. There's a trend for other larger losses. For instance, the third party vessel elation with the foundations or, or the cables. In 2022 alone, there are more than three large losses due to the vessel elation in the Europe and in mainland China. Yes, especially for China, I would like to mention that last year there was a barge drifted due to typhoon impact and uh, had a collision with multiple turbines and uh, and cables and it is by far the largest loss ever in china yeah uh, i think in europe we had a few collisions claims as well in last year then if you look at the offshore installation losses it's still there are larger losses from the normal installation like uh, i think we in the market we experience larger losses for from the pyro which means the monopile when they installed, they have a suddenly free fall during the ham pie hammering due to unexpected soft soil layers. 
and the equipment damaged during the drone grouted power installation at the locations with a very, very hard seabed ground. I think for follow on, if you look at a bit further, there's many things at the insurance market we are, we are worried. As I mentioned in the, our last episode, that's happened to Europe and the US regions. We have the very high inflation and a very distressed supply chain. And the, obviously the increase the size of turbine foundations that's happened to all the regions which means we have a very limited vessel selection to install larger turbines and much heavy foundations. And uh, highlighted in last year, we have um, energy market volatility, so which means the electricity price has become extremely high. That means we will have very higher BI claims. So at the insurance market, we, we really need to look at what's the, you know, risk mitigation tools available for us. Shinka, possibly I'll let you start. Sure. So besides for common scene requirements like turbine type certificate, there are other useful uh, risk mitigation tools, uh, which includes MWS, Marine Warranty Survey, and uh, once available, an uh, offshore wind project certificate would be a big plus as it covers not only turbines, but farms, whole assets, cables, offshore substations, onshore, sub onshore control centers, and so on. From stage of design, manufacturing, install, commissioning, operation, and maintenance. Normally, turbine type certificate and uh, MWS should be the tools of a minimum requirement for insurance and reinsurance. Thank you, Xingang. Yeah, you mentioned the project certification. I think that's quite a useful tool in terms of risk mitigation. And the project certification is a compulsory requirement for most of the countries, like most of the main European countries. And for some other regions, possibly it's not a strict requirement. And uh, Leonor, possibly you can give us the highlights on the marine warranty survey, how that uh, that works. What's uh, you know the the into the risk mitigation from the marine warranty survey? Uh, it's also a tool available for 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 risk mitigation. As Singong said, um, the marine warranty surveyor is a um, third-party verification, and uh, they will uh, ensure that the best practices are provided for transportation and installation phase of a project. And when it comes to renewable energy, the major aspect is the technical review at the front end. So there are many key things to be reviewed, like the construction vessels to be used, the loadout, the sea fastening, transportation of foundations, the tower, the nacelles, the cable is pulling, and the uh, offshore substation. So the marine warranty surveyor will also do on-site attendance for all the uh, key items I just mentioned, like the loadout and the sail away. And from an underwriting standpoint, the use of a marine warranty surveyor is a very effective way to manage our exposure. So their role is to ensure that the pre-agreed procedures are followed, like, as I say, lifting, transport, etc. So in recent years, insurance policies have varied from policy to policy, which with, a, I would say, a lack of consistency and gray areas. And it wasn't so clear that... Uh, what will happen if there is a breach uh, in terms of the marine warranty surveyor clause? What happens if the um, 
the insurer decide not to follow the uh, instruction of the marine warranty surveyor. So that's why the GNRC has uh, published uh, clauses which really clarify these uncertainties. And the cover under the policy is said to be a conditional upon appropriate certificates of approval being issued by the marine warranty surveyor. And uh, there is also an obligation on the, on the insurer to comply with all recommendations, requirements, or restrictions given by the marine warranty surveyor. So which means if they don't follow them, they're not covered. Okay, thank you, Leno. I think, uh, yeah, you, you mentioned the JR 2021-028A the Marine Warranty Survey endorsement, which is a very, very good uh, clause to be used. And uh, I think from the insurance, obviously, the, the as mentioned in our second episode, there's lots of defect uh, claims uh, from the offshore wind projects. So it's quite important as an insurance company we put the policy and the right clause to control the defect claims. One of the useful is a serious loss clause. So at the offshore wind farm, we have uh, many repeated uh, components, for instance, turbines, foundations, array cables. A uh, serious loss clause is uh, trying to limit the repeated claims from the same similar root cause. For instance, we will only pay 100% of the claim money for the first three losses, 75 for the second three losses, and 50% for the third three losses afterwards. Well, i.e. from the turns loss onwards, we were not reliable for, for any, any, any claims. And, uh, as Lana mentioned, there's inconsistent from the policy to policy for the policy wordings. For the serious loss clause is similar. We are seeing the different wordings in the serious loss clause in the different policies. I think the key things is we need to be aware how the policy deductible applies in the serious loss clause. We need to be careful on, on the wordings, particularly on the policy deductible. Our insurance point of view, we want to see the policy deductible apply for each every losses, but some other policy wordings is applied to each root cause. Yeah, especially for some uh, uh, policies in Asian market, as we know, some uh, wordings looks similar but actually they are meaning completely different possibly yeah thank you Singa. and uh Lena, possibly you can give us also the design defect clause other design defect clauses so a fundamental feature of a material damage policy is a cover for damage caused to the works arising out of a defect in design, plan, specifications, material, or workmanship. So there are two sets of defect wording that are commonly utilized. You have a World Car Defective Part Clause, very common in oil and gas industry, and you have a London Engineering Group Lake Clause. And um, for the Lake Clause, there are three levels of cover, which incremental levels of expanded cover. So the Lake One will exclude all loss or damage due to a defect design, plan specification, material or workmanship. You have a leg two. The leg two will exclude all costs that will have been incurred if replacement or rectification of a defect had been carried out immediately prior to the damage occurring. And that's very important because it means that all the means you have to put in place to repair the design, uh, like the installation cost, installation vessel cost, which can represent up to 70, 80% of the claim itself, they will be excluded with the leg two. And then 
the last level is the leg three, which will, to summarize, it will cover pretty much everything except the betterment. So the leg two and the wildcard effective part clause are quite similar. But the thing is, with the reason why we want to use the leg two, it clearly excludes the installation cost, the installation vessel cost. Whereas the wildcard effective part clause, there are some gray areas. It's not so clear. So as insurers, we will prefer to use the leg clause as design is an exclusion. Exactly. Yeah. I did Leonard have highlighted we are prefer really the leg clause over the wildcard clause. Particularly, I think in the leg clause, you don't have to specifically define what's exactly a defect part and what is the repair cost for the defect. After the three different episodes that you participated in and, and this last one that is more technical, maybe like one final question on the topic is what is core stance regarding the energy transition and, and new energies in general? And, and what's your perspective on that? In, in a nutshell, in practical terms, I would say that the aim is, uh, is to reduce carbon emissions and intensity of the business that we write. So the philosophy here is uh, that rather than redlining particular sectors that we don't like, we want to work with our clients, uh, engage with them, understand their decarbonization pathways, and help them by providing insurance solutions for new technologies and new innovations that, uh, that they are investing in and they are developing in. I think, Jake, you can develop uh, furthermore. Yeah, oh, thank you, Elena. Yeah, I think that at, at the school, we are really committed to implement the new initiative in the energy transition sector to protect the climate and to promote the uh, low carbon technology. And uh, just highlight, we have recently set up the new energy practice within specialty business sector to support our clients and the partners more closely, better in the, in this uh, energy transition journey. I believe that this is why we are uh, sitting together today to have this uh, discussion, roundtable discussion. Thank you very much, all three of you, for this great discussion today and for shedding light on this promising new energy over the past three episodes. I hope to welcome you back soon on the channel, uh, maybe for more chats on developments in this area. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us today. You can subscribe to the Score Innovation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite platform, and be our first listener to new releases. Stay tuned and see you at the next episode.